The cross undoes the exile of God's people. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were driven from the garden and a flaming sword guarded against their return. The cross of Christ removes the flaming sword and opens the way for the sons and daughters of God to come home. Praise the Lord. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. I love the idea of the cross of Jesus Christ ending the exile of God's people. I know there are other ways to talk about what Jesus accomplished for us through his death on Calvary, but that is one of my all-time favorites. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 27. From chapter 26, verse 6 through to 28, 20, we're in a section that can be usefully titled, The Passion and Resurrection of Jesus. I mentioned in the last episode that the trial of Jesus had two parts to it. There was a Jewish trial that involved a preliminary hearing before Annas, the father of Caiaphas, who functioned as a sort of co-high priest alongside of Caiaphas. He investigated Jesus while the Sanhedrin was being gathered in order to determine what charges might be brought against him. The Jewish trial proper was conducted by the Jewish ruling council or Sanhedrin. That story took up the bulk of chapter 26 and is concluded in the first few verses of chapter 27, at which point Jesus is handed over to Pilate so as to be executed by crucifixion. We pick up the story at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Pilate, of course, is well known in extra-biblical literature. He is generally portrayed as cruel vindictive and insensitive to local concerns. He hated the Jews and often went out of his way to torment them. In the present crisis, it is not so much that he is for Jesus as it is that he is against the Jewish ruling council. Verse 3, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them in the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. There have been many attempts made over the years to get inside the mind of Judas. Did he hand Jesus over to the Sanhedrin thinking that this would force Jesus' hand and compel him to begin acting in a more direct and political manner? 
Did he hand Jesus over thinking that he would be arrested and beaten but not crucified? Or did he simply have a crisis of conscience as he reflected upon the severity of what he had done? The text doesn't say all of what is going on in Judas's mind. He clearly felt remorse and he clearly regretted his part in the miscarriage of justice that was rapidly unfolding. As to the specifics of his death, Matthew says that he went out and hung himself. Acts mentions that his body burst and he fell headlong. It is often suggested that if Judas hung himself during the festival, no one would want to have contact with his body lest they become ceremonially unclean. And therefore, his corpse was likely left to bake in the sun for several days, at which point it may well have burst and fallen headlong particularly if he hung himself from a tree overhanging a gully or a ravine of some kind. And therefore, this isn't so much a contradiction as a scarcity of detail. We just don't have all the pieces, so we should be cautious about however we have constructed the picture in our minds. Verse 11, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. Again, Jesus' answer is affirmative but qualified. In essence, he's saying, yes, but not in the sense that you would understand it. Verse 12. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. We are reminded here of Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Verse 15. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Now, interestingly, some older manuscripts preserve the longer name Jesus Barabbas. It'll appear as a text note in some of your Bibles. Now, of course, Jesus was a very popular name in Palestine at that time. The name Barabbas means son of the father. So if it is true that this notorious prisoner was named Jesus, son of the father, then the irony is overwhelming. They chose the wrong Jesus. They chose the wrong son of the father. They preferred a political insurrectionist to the incarnate Son of God and suffering Savior. Truly, our character is revealed by our choices. Verse 19, besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, 
Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. Again, the fact that Pilate had to say, Jesus, who is called Christ, suggests that the men may have had the same name. The crowd has been prompted to ask for Jesus the Christ to be crucified. Now, to be clear, this was not the same crowd that paraded Jesus into the city back in chapter 21. That crowd was made up mostly of Galilean pilgrims. This crowd was likely a mixture of the supporters of Barabbas and other Jerusalem locals stirred up and manipulated by the Sanhedrin. It was very common for the Sanhedrin to arrange for a noisy crowd whenever requests were being made of the Roman governors. Verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. When the Jews scourged a person, it was limited to 40 lashes, but the Romans, of course, practiced no such restrictions. And so we don't know how many lashes Jesus actually received here. We do know about the instrument, however. The Romans used a whip that they called a flagellum, and it consisted of leather thongs tipped with pieces of bone, metal, or lead. Many people died under Roman scourging. It tore the flesh from the body, often right down to the bone. It was brutal, and it was meant to be. Verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Again, the irony is powerful. When the soldiers hail Jesus as the king of the Jews, they're speaking far better than they know. Hey, Pastor Paul, I'd love to jump in here if I can, because I've always wondered, why did so few people recognize Jesus as the Messiah and king of the world? You mentioned that the Roman soldiers spoke better than they knew when they mocked him and called him the king of the Jews, but he was the king of the Jews and he was the king of the world. Why didn't more people see that? Well, certainly some people did. As Jesus made his way into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, people lined the streets singing and shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Well, yeah, I know. I I get that. But then a couple of days later, there was a crowd shouting, crucify him. Yeah. Now, but those were different people. The people shouting Hosanna to the son of David were Galilean pilgrims who had accompanied Jesus down from the north so as to celebrate Passover. So they knew Jesus. They were cheering for him. He was the hometown boy. But the people shouting crucify him in Matthew 27 were people from Jerusalem who had been stirred up by the priestly elite. And that's the point. The Jewish people were divided. 
Some of them were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, the son of David, who had been prophesied from long ago, but others were not convinced. And why is that? I mean, he does seem to check all the boxes. He was born in Bethlehem, in the line of David. He did miracles, healed the sick, raised the guy from the dead even. What more were people looking for? Well, that's just it. Some people were looking for more. There were a lot of folks who expected the son of David to be more like David, a warrior who would unite Israel, defeat the Romans, and lead the Jewish people back to global power and prominence. But Jesus didn't seem very interested in doing any of that. He seemed to have his eye on something bigger, something not just about Jewish power and prosperity, something that went deeper into the human soul and wider into every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth. So he was a different kind of king than many people were looking for. But he was the king, and he is the king, whether people recognize that fact or not. Yes, and amen to that. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Matthew's primary interest in sharing this detail is to show how it fulfills Psalm 69.21, which says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. D.A. Carson says here, Like David his father, Jesus looked for sympathy, but found none. Closed quote. Verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots, Then they sat down and kept watch over him there, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Pilate likely intended this as a further insult to the Sanhedrin. He was not likely intending to make any Christological statement. Nevertheless, and once again, we have a character in Matthew's Gospel speaking far better than he knows. Verse 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. The word used here has more the sense of insurrectionists. These were likely the companions of Barabbas, verse 39. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. The irony here, of course, is that if... Jesus had saved himself, then he would not have been able to save others. Verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. The sixth hour, of course, would be noon. The day began at 6 a.m. So this is darkness from noon until three in the afternoon. Whether it was due to a volcanic eruption and a cloud of ash floating across Palestine or a dust storm, both of which have been suggested, or to some other miraculous phenomenon, is not the point. Matthew is not interested in the source of the darkness. He's interested in the meaning of the darkness. 
Darkness is a symbol of judgment in the Bible, and we should understand it so here. It is a sign of God's judgment on the land and its people and on Jesus, who became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus here seems to be quoting from Psalm 22, verse 1. His quotation is free form, combining the Hebrew pronunciation of God with the remainder of the verse flowing out in Aramaic. Jesus was, of course, at least trilingual, speaking Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek with likely also a smattering of Latin. More important than what language Jesus is speaking here is the matter of how this saying should be understood. What does it mean for Jesus to feel abandoned by the Father? R.T. France cautions us against trying to peer too deeply into this mystery. He says, There must always be mystery here. We who are finite and sinners do not understand and cannot even begin to understand how evil appears to a holy God. The prophet Habakkuk could say in his prayer, Your eyes are too pure to behold evil, and you cannot look on wrongdoing. Habakkuk 1.13. And the Apostle Paul adds, Him who knew no sin, he, i.e. the Father, made sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And again, Christ became a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, Galatians 3.13. When we put such passages of Scripture together, it seems that in the working out of salvation for sinners, the hitherto unbroken communion between the Father and the Son was mysteriously broken. Closed quote. D.A. Carson's counsel is similar. He says, If we ask in what ontological sense the Father and the Son are here divided, the answer must be, that we do not know because we are not told, closed quote. I think that's a, a good place to leave it. Verse 47, and some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Jesus is sovereign over even the moment of his own death. No one took his life from him. He gave it freely as a ransom for many. Thanks be to God. Verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. There were two curtains in the temple, actually, one separating the outer court from the holy place and the other separating the holy place from the most holy place. It is surely this inner curtain that is being referred to here. The symbolism is fairly transparent. Leon Morris says helpfully here, the meaning is surely that by the death of Jesus, the way into the holiest has been opened. Closed quote. The cross undoes the exile of God's people. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were driven from the garden and a flaming sword guarded against their return. 
The cross of Christ removes the flaming sword and opens the way for the sons and daughters of God to come home. Praise the Lord. Verse 52. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tomb after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. As in the case of Mark's gospel, the climactic statement of Jesus' identity is made by a most unlikely person. Whereas the religious leaders have rejected him and his own disciples have abandoned him, here a Roman soldier declares, truly this man was the Son of God. Verse 55. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. This would have been late on Friday, perhaps 5.15 to 5.30 p.m. The Sabbath would begin at 6 p.m., and thus there was no time for full preparations to be made. The body of Jesus is laid in a tomb near to the crucifixion site belonging to Joseph of Arimathea, thus fulfilling Isaiah 53, 9, which says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 62. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, We remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure, by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So these were temple guards who were sent to secure the tomb. These were not Roman soldiers. Pilate says, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. This explains then why the guards reported back to the chief priests and not to Pilate after the resurrection. And of course, We laugh at the idea that a group of temple guards armed with swords and spears could keep the Savior in the grave. He who triumphs over death and hell will not be thwarted by the pathetic plans and the fearful precautions of a rejected leadership caste. 
Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Psalm 2, 1 to 6. The Lord has spoken, and the sun will rise and reign over the nations forever. Thanks be to God. And amen to that. I love that line that you quoted there from Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs. There's a sense in which no matter what people do, no matter what schemes are hatched, God's will is going to be accomplished. He wanted Jesus to die on Calvary's hill. That was always going to be part of the plan. So even though the temple elite were trying to get rid of Jesus, and even though the Romans were probably glad to have him out of the way as well, in the end, all they did was exactly what God had ordained. They exalted Jesus to the place where he was truly revealed as the Savior and King of the world. That's got to be one of my absolute favorite parts of the gospel story. Yeah, me too. And it was basically the climax of the first sermon ever preached in the Christian church. In the sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's Acts 2, 22 to 23. So there's that mystery you were just talking about. It was God's will the whole time for this to happen even though it happened through the hands of wicked men. This was always the plan. Jesus had to go down before he was lifted up. And Peter goes on to talk about that. He says, you crucified Jesus. You killed him, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Well, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves because that's exactly what we'll be talking about next week. Yeah, looking forward to that. Me too. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.